The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, Paul writes, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. Though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers." For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last." Let us pray. Father, we pray for the Spirit of God to come as your word is opened, as we think about your work in the past. May you encourage us in the Lord, in you yourself, in your mighty power, in your amazing promises to us, in your faithfulness to your people who are purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. Open our eyes, speak to us from your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. As I just said, John Knox is considered the founder of Presbyterianism, and by many, he's also considered the founder of the Puritan movement in history because of his teaching about church government, as well as his teaching on the relationship of church and state. And those are subjects I will not be going into this evening. You can read about them. You can study those on your own. 
There's much to say about John Knox, of course, and the Reformation that I cannot say in a brief time. So I'm just skipping over some highlights. But I want us to see the principles from our text about God-centered and God-empowered ministry exemplified and lived out in the life of John Knox. Not a perfect man by any means with his own weaknesses and failures and misjudgments and things like that, but still a life in which Christ was very evident. And I would like to break our study into three parts. One is to briefly overview the state, the spiritual state of Scotland at the time of the birth of Knox. And then, secondly, a brief overview of some of the highlights of his life. And then thirdly, to see four connecting points to our text and seek to think about how they were exemplified by Knox. So first of all, let us think about and just get an idea for the state of Scotland, the spiritual state of Scotland at the beginning of the 16th century. Knox was born most likely in 1514. So what was happening spiritually? Well, people were being put to death for their faith in Christ. It's hard for us to relate to that. In February of 1528, Patrick Hamilton was burned alive at St. Andrews. He was condemned for affirming that sacraments cannot save. He was condemned for affirming that a man is justified not by works, but by faith alone. Knox would have been about 14 years old at the time. And his was not the only death on behalf of Christ. In the 1530s, Tyndale's translation of the New Testament was against the law to read in Scotland. And the church before the Reformation was a church abundant in possessions and wealth with clergy living off that largesse, but spiritually dead. Of a population of probably 800,000 or so in Scotland at the time, there were 3,000 or so priests. It was a very poor population, but the church owned the finest buildings in the land. And the church was deeply mired in spiritual and moral decay. Douglas Bond in his book says, There was perhaps no place in 16th century Europe more in need of reformation than Scotland. It's hard to believe for us who stand at this side of history and see that. We wouldn't think of Scotland that way. Ian Murray states that Scotland at that time was a brutal, backwater kingdom dominated by covetous, bloated clerics as well as corrupt civil power. Yet God was providentially at work even before John Knox came on the scene. The Lollards, as they're called, Believers, influenced by the teaching of John Wycliffe since the late 14th century, so that was over 100 years beforehand, uh, they were proclaiming the gospel to some degree in Scotland throughout that time. Martin Luther's teaching on justification by grace through faith alone was making its way into Scotland by pamphlets and books of various kinds. English translations of the Bible were being smuggled into Scotland by bold believers seeking to get the, God, the, the word of God to the nation. Even peasants at the time were singing popular ballads, exposing clerical abuses, and celebrating gospel truth. The clergy, 
professed celibacy, but it was very common for them to live with a concubine. Murray tells about Archbishop David Beaton, who was known to have eight illegitimate children, and the Bishop of Moray had ten. And the sons of such liaisons were often given lucrative positions in the church, and the daughters of such unions were often married to the nobility of the land. Well, preaching had long since disappeared from the land. Some priests were illiterate and could scarcely say the alphabet. The church had grown rich, and to a large degree, the money raised from its teachings about the sacraments and purgatory and indulgences are what made the Protestant witness so obnoxious to them because it was challenging their rule over the absolute authority they claimed over the souls of women and men. Murray recounts an examination of a monk suspected of preaching the gospel by the bishop of Dunkeld. The bishop declared that he had no, ob- no objection to preaching provided it stuck to, quote, any good gospel or any good epistle that setteth forth the liberty of the Holy Church. The prisoner shrewdly replied that he didn't know how to distinguish in the Bible between good gospels and epistles and evil ones. The bishop, lost for an answer, could only exclaim, Thank God I never knew what the Old Testament and New Testament was, and I will know nothing but my breviary and my pontifical. (laughs) We smile. But how sad that is. And so, the spiritual state of Scotland at the time of the birth of Knox was very dark. And so, John Knox is born probably in 1514, but scholars say it could be any time from 1505 to 1514 because very little is known about Knox's early life. But he was born in the town of Haddington, about 17 miles east of Edinburgh, into a simple working-class family. He did become a student in St. Andrews, most likely, um, and apparently did not finish his degree, but in 1536, probably that was the date, he was ordained to the priesthood. So he was not one of those ones supporting Patrick Hamilton when he was burned at the stake. And then... Knox became a church lawyer, so to speak, a, an apostolic notary, as it was called. But then in 1542 to 1543, a change in government allowed for a temporary toleration for Protestants. And Knox heard the gospel from the preaching of a friar by the name of Thomas Gilliam, preaching in East Lothian and in Edinburgh. And so probably he was converted in that time frame about 1543. He's almost 30 years old now. And apparently he must have immersed himself in Scripture for the next three years because in the time frame of 1546 and 1547, he emerges into view as a 32-year-old who is able to teach God's Word, not yet publicly in that sense, but in the sense that he was earning his livelihood as a tutor of boys, teaching them and teaching them the word of God. And so by the winter of 1545, he was closely associated with the preaching ministry of 
a preacher by the name of George Wishart. He was going around the countryside with Wishard, um, seeking to support the preaching that he did, clearly converted to the gospel now. And he writes about that and his understanding of God's word and his understanding of the sufficiency of Christ to save. But interestingly, his duties included, as he accompanied Wishard around, was uh, guarding him with a two-edged broad sword. How would you like that task, young men? Because there were assassins seeking to take Wishard's life. This is the environment that they lived in. Few cardinals of the day were more corrupt than Cardinal Beaton of St. Andrews. And Beaton lived with his early powers, his guards, his sumptuous living, his ladies, and his illegitimate children. He was determined to stamp out the rising tide of Reformation that was beginning to take place. Douglas Bond writes it in these words, In January of 1544, Beaton ordered four men hanged for breaking Lent and refusing to pray to saints. Not satisfied, he arrested one of the men's wives, a young mother, for the crime of praying in Christ's name instead of Mary's name during her labor pains. And so she was put to death. It gives you a sense of the atmosphere and the context. And no wonder we see Knox's life turn out to be such a battle as the years go on. So during this time, when Beaton was putting people to death like this, George Wishard was ranging far and wide in the lowlands of Scotland, and he was attended by John Knox and other young men following him. But by the evening of January 16th, 1546, as night fell that day, Wishard received communication that the agents of Beaton were very close to him. In other words, his time was up. He had sought to preach the gospel, sought to do it without being caught, but that Beaton's agents were close and the noose was tightening on him. And he, there's this scene with Knox and the other young men there when he sends them away. It's a especially touching scene with Knox. And he says to Knox in part, there's a quote that's come down to us, uh, Nay, Wishard said, return to your bairns. In other words, your students, your young Men, return to your bairns and God bless you. One is sufficient for a sacrifice. In other words, Wishard had the wisdom and judgment to know that it wasn't necessary for these young men to be put to death as well. To send them out to try to protect their lives, he would lay down his life, which he did. Because he was arrested near midnight that night, as he had suspected. And after a month, he was burned at the stake at St. Andrews by Cardinal Beaton. And when his execution took place, Beaton had cannons on the walls aimed at the crowds who watched to make sure that there was no monkey business. This is the atmosphere, and this is the kind of conflict going on at the time. Well, three months after Wishard was burned at the stake on May 29th of 1546, Several young noblemen's sons managed to slip into St. Andrews and made their way into Beaton's bedchamber just as one of his mistresses was being let out by the postern gate. And they burst in upon him and murdered him 
calling him to repent for the slaying of Wishard. Knox was not involved in that at all. But what resulted from that attack and that murder and really the taking of the castle by this group of young men and other young men who flocked to their side was a doomed-to-fail revolution that was cut short with a group of men that became known as the Castilians. And they held the castle of St. Andrews for over a year, eventually with the army of Mary Guise, the queen regent, surrounding them, and she had sought help from France. From France. And so um, they're besieged for this year by an army, but able to hold out there and having many supplies. And during this time, Knox was asked to come as a chaplain to them. Well, he came and joined them. He was being increasingly urged to expand his private instructing to public preaching, which he continued to say no to. He continued to decline. And there is an interesting place when he's there with them, and he's being beseeched to preach. In fact, let me read to you. This is what one of them said to him. In the name of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ, and in the name of these that presently call you by my mouth, I charge you that you refuse not this holy vocation. In other words, he's being called to preach. But that you have regard to the glory of God, the increase of Christ's kingdom, and the edification of your brethren, that you take upon you the public office in charge of preaching, even as you look to avoid God's heavy displeasure and desire that he should multiply his graces with you. So here are these young men exhorting him to preach to them. Now, if you know anything of Knox's life, you might think he would just stand up and thunder a sermon out. And if you don't know anything about his history and everything, it's surprising, but his reaction is to burst into tears and run from the room. That's how he felt about it. He felt himself being so weak. He felt himself not being up to the task. Um, Far from being overconfident in himself, that was his initial reaction. But eventually, he accepts the call. And to this group, he preached his first sermon on Daniel 7, in which he, to quote him, showed the great love of God for his church and how the true church hears the voice of its own true pastor, Jesus Christ. Only two of Knox's sermons have, been, uh, have come down to us. So we only are, have bits and pieces of what he preached over the years. But these young reformers and revolutionaries, we would say, who were in St. Andrews at the time, hoped for rescue from England at the time. But none was to come from the aging and ailing Henry VIII, who was about to die. But France did send help to the regent, Mary Guise, in the form of a heavily gunned 21-galley fleet, which began a very serious bombardment of St. Andrews. And so their time was up. And after this bombardment, and, and they knew they could not withstand for long, the, um, the group surrendered, and they were clapped in chains and sent to France. And then began the period of Knox's life as a galley slave for France for 19 months. Here he was, chained in a galley ship. They would be chained about the water level, and so the Atlantic Ocean would wash in across them regularly and a very difficult ordeal, an experience that ruined Knox's health for the remainder of his life. 
There is a famous incident um, during that 19-month period, he made two voyages on that French galley ship back to Scotland. And on the second voyage back there, as the ship lay at anchor between Dundee and St. Andrew, Knox was so weak with disease that others were certain he was about to die. And fearing that Knox had slipped into delirium, a fellow Scot slave, James Balfour, asked him whether he recognized where they were. Yes, I know it well, Knox replied, for I see the steeple of that place where God first opened my mouth in public to his glory. And I know no matter how weak I am now that I shall not die until I glorify his godly name in the same place. An interesting statement for Knox to make when he was near death, but it was fulfilled. And so eventually, finally, after... Edward VI comes to the throne, and after extensive negotiations by the Protestant leaders of England at that time with the French, Knox and the rest of the Scots, Scottish prisoners were released uh, after 19 months, as I said, with the exception of James Melville, who had murdered Cardinal Beaton. He was not released. Well, let me be even more brief then as I go through the other highlights of Knox's life. From 1549 to 15. 53. For those four years, Knox was welcomed back to England. It was too dangerous for, be, for him to be in Scotland at the time. And he, he was welcomed there by the leaders of the Reformation, Cramner, Ridley, Latimer. And um, he was offered very powerful bishoprics and places to preach in London. He even had opportunity to preach to King Edward at Windsor Castle at St. George's Chapel there. So he began his, what would become in his life, the privilege of preaching to kings and queens. But he refused all the high and mighty bishoprics and so forth, instead accepted a lowly pastorate at Berwick-on-Tweed near to the border of Scotland. And so he spent those four years for the most part. And it was there that he met his future wife, Marjorie Bowes, who along with her mother were two of the first fruits of conversions of his ministry there. They were the wife and the daughter of the governor of Norham Castle. And so God blesses his ministry there, and he's preaching daily during that time. The gospel is going forth with power. Reformation is being carried on in England. But suddenly the young King Edward dies at age 16 in 1553, and his half-sister, Mary Tudor, reigns, begins to reign. She came to the throne and would be later called Bloody Mary for her persecution, Protestants, during her reign. Knox and many Protestants flee with nothing along with them. Knox had a handful of coins in his pocket when he fled to the continent, And during her five-year reign, from 1553 to 1558, 280 Protestants were burned at the stake. Many of these, Knox's friends and associates that he had made during that, before that time. And at times, Knox is near despair. But God was using this time of exile in Germany and in Switzerland for preparing Knox for really the life work that he was going to do. He spent some of the time pastoring the English-speaking church in Frankfurt, and more importantly, he spent a number of years with John Calvin in 
Geneva, pastoring the English-speaking refugees there, but working closely with John Calvin as part of the Reformation. And during that time, he even made what we might call a brief commando preaching tour of Scotland itself, where he was always just one step ahead of being captured, but preaching boldly Christ, and at that time able to marry uh, his betrothed while he was there and bring her in exile with him. But the more he was condemned by the clerics of the day, the more he gained support increasingly from Protestant lords as well as common people throughout the land. And Douglas Bond puts it well when he says, when he was burned in effigy in Edinburgh, Scotland had by then found her earthly champion in him. Here he was in the middle of conflict. Here he was in the middle of the battle going on for the soul of Scotland. And so he returns to exile after that brief, that brief tour. And finally, after the death of Mary Tudor in 1559, Knox returned to Scotland to begin, we might say, his most important life work for the next 13 years until his death in 1572. These final 13 years leading the Reformation in Scotland as God was at work in a powerful way bringing the gospel to Scotland. So in the summer of 1559, Knox returns to Scotland preaching the gospel, supported by many nobles of the land. And the situation politically is is very complex, so it's hard to summarize these things in a short time. But having support on one hand, and yet being furiously resisted by the queen regent, Mary of Guise, the archbishop, um, and Uh, who is the mother of Mary, Queen of Scots. By the way, there are three Marys figuring in here. It's confusing. Mary Tudor, who was in England, Bloody Mary, as she is called, Mary Guise, who was the mother of Mary, Queen Queen of Scots, who was raised in France. And, And so Mary Guise reigned in her stead while she was growing up in France. And then finally, during Knox's lifetime, Mary, Queen of Scots, will return as an 18 year old. So there are Marys on every side here. The Archbishop of St. Andrews at this time threatened that if Knox preached, he would be shot on sight. Of course, you might guess that didn't stop him preaching, and he wasn't shot. There were assassination attempts on his life. There was a bullet that once went through the window of his house but missed him, but he lived. And that summer of 1559 saw extraordinary revival as the gospel spread in Scotland. And so from 1559 to 1572, when he died, there was major reformation and revival. A major confession of faith was written, which Knox was, in, was very instrumental in. In 1560, just one year after he, was, he returned, is when 18-year-old Mary, Queen of Scots, returned to rule. Also in that year, John Knox's wife, his young wife in her 20s still, died and left him with two small boys. It said that when she returned from exile, you just see the kind of stress they were under. She just could not sleep. And you just wonder what else led to her early death. But she died. A great grief for Knox. He would eventually remarry and have three daughters to his second wife. There's a really interesting story about um, that one of those daughters who would marry another great reformer, John Welsh. And that when that daughter would stand before the king of England 
And the king of England would just say to her, if your husband would only assent and to, what, to the state's rule over the church, I would not need to take his head. And she holds out her apron and says, please put his head here. In other words, she's saying, I would rather have his head here than that he would give up what he stands for. Interesting sidelight. The king, by the way, said to her, who is your father? And she said, uh, Knox, Mr. Knox. And he said, um, how many of, their, of them are you? And she said, there are three daughters. And he said to her, I'm so glad there aren't three sons or all three of my kingdoms would be troubled. <laughs> it's an interesting side story. Anyway, during this period, a reformation, Knox led the reformation, which involved these complex issues of church and state. And what took place were his famous sermons to and interactions with the young Mary, Queen of Scots, who was Catholic and who resisted what he said. Um, But finally, he drew near to death, and in the final year of his life, he he was in much pain. He could barely walk. He had to be supported when he was walking. I think of him as a 57-year-old man, as someone who's older than that, and just think of how his health was broken at that time. And he had to be lifted up in the pulpit to preach. He couldn't get up there on his own. But it said that as he preached, his, his fire returned, and he would rise up with a boldness and a power to preach the word of God and still be used by God even to near the end of his life. And finally, on November 24th, 1572, having his wife read to him from John 17 and 1 Corinthians 15, and from Calvin, his good friend, who he considered his father spiritually, reading Calvin's sermons on Ephesians to him, he went to glory. Well, let's make four applications then as we think of Knox's life. Our third major part here is is some points from our text. The first point I have for you is Knox, an example of declaring Christ in the midst of much conflict. Notice in our text in verses 1 and 2, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Knox was bold in declaring Christ in the midst of spiritual conflict, in the midst of earthly conflict, we would say, and he was sustained by God to do so. We had boldness in our God. And Paul talks at the end of our text, in verses 15 and 16, about the kind of opposition from the religious leaders of the Jews that he experienced, and it's not unlike what Knox experienced. I think it's hard for us in the West to relate to this. You know, it's interesting for me to read about this, study about this, but it's just hard to relate. This is not what we face. Really, we face more deeply the revelation character of the harlot, which represents seduction much more than we face the revelation character of the beast, which is oppressive oppressive persecution typically by government and civil powers. The Earl of Morton, the regent, is variously quoted as saying at Knox's grave, there lies one who in his life never feared the face of man. Now, I don't think that's absolutely true, but it is true that Knox was exemplary in fearing and loving and trusting God instead of fearing human beings. He was bold in that sense. He had 
boldness to declare God, to declare the word of God in the midst of much conflict. Here he was preaching before kings, preaching before queens who really wanted him dead, before nobles and lords of both sides, preaching in the threat of assassination. But he did so with a confidence in Christ, a confidence that though he was weak, Jesus Christ would accomplish his purposes through him in some way to advance the gospel. An example of declaring Christ in the midst of conflict. So, again, what is the conflict we face? What is the conflict our churches face in the midst of a secular society? And we need the Spirit of God to come upon us and make us bold. Maybe the situation cannot be mapped exactly onto John Knox's, but it's still a spiritual warfare going on. We We face the same hostility of the world, even though it comes in a different way. Let us be confident in our God and be encouraged by the example of Knox. Secondly, Knox, an example of ministry founded on the word of God. Verses 3 to 8. Our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or others, though we could have made demands as the apostles of Christ." And he goes on to talk about sharing the gospel of God. Powerful declaration. Here we see this in the Apostle Paul. Paul is basically saying, our appeal to you does not come from ulterior motives. In Knox's day, many people on both sides were using political and religious leverage to enrich themselves, to gain lands, to gain holdings, to gain reputation and status. Knox was so unlike that. Knox saw himself as founded on the word of God, entrusted with a message, the gospel, as approved by God, as not wanting to deceive anyone. In fact, part of the boldness was he wanted to speak the truth of God truly to men and women's hearts and souls. Knox's typical sermon, two to three hours long, usually more like three. I thought exemplifying him tonight, I'd give you a taste of that. No, you're all worried now. So the first half hour when he preached was just an exposition of the text. And then he would go into applying it to his hearers. What a different day and age. They had a longer attention span. They didn't have, you know, football games to get home to or, you know, uh, their iPhones to check. And it was a different era and day. But still, a preaching ministry founded on the Word of God. I appreciated Michael's sermon so much this morning about the Reformation emphasis of the sufficiency of God's Word. And John Knox had a high view of the office of preacher. Not that he had a high view of himself. He had a very low view of himself. He used all kinds of word of words to describe himself as wretched and weak and poor and miserable. But he had a high view of the God-appointed calling to declare the word of God, not to declare the ideas of men, declare the very word of God. And at the center of his preaching was Jesus Christ, declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ, declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ and 
Jesus Christ's sufficiency both in our justification and in our sanctification as well. That both justification and sanctification flow from the work of God in Jesus Christ. These are the main themes of John Knox. Knox certainly preached against the typical idolatries of his day. And he could thunder out threatenings of God's judgments to those who who were, were rebellious and proud and resisting the word of God. But he could also regularly seek in his words, I quote you here, to instruct the ignorant, to confirm the weak, to comfort the consciences of those who were humbled under the sense of their sins. It's not unlike the Apostle Paul talking about being affectionately desirous of you, sharing with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. You just see John Knox with a passion, with a tenderness. You know, yes, he could thunder. And it was said that the preaching of, God, of John Knox's uh, sermons was like 500 trumpets continuously braying. But he could also deeply and seriously and sincerely seek to build up those whose souls were wounded by a sense of their sin and to call them to the gospel of Christ. Thirdly, Knox was an example of a life poured out for the cause of Christ. An example of a life poured out for the cause of Christ. I look at Paul in verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil... We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. You just hear from that text the apostle pouring out his soul. You just see him giving his very lifeblood, laboring and toiling, going from Philippi to uh, Berea and Thessalonica, and just uh, seeking to preach the gospel. John Knox's life, I think, exemplifies this in that Knox never became wealthy at all. He never had hardly anything to his name. He knew great physical and emotional hardship. Here he was almost always on the run most of his life, enduring all kinds of hardships. But especially this idea of Knox pouring himself out in prayer for God to do his work in Scotland. This was the great desire of his heart. And it's interesting that even as he's off St. Andrews in the French galley ship, And near to death, what is he thinking about? He's thinking about Scotland for Christ and thinking, oh God, let me return here and preach again. His was really a life poured out in this sense and given to prayer for Scotland. Spurgeon, the last of the Puritans, says this, when John Knox went upstairs to plead with God for Scotland, it was the greatest event in Scottish history. What a great statement. Spurgeon summarizes it well. It's not surprising that in 1909, on the 400th anniversary of the birth of John Calvin, when civic and church leaders unveiled the newly chiseled Reformation wall in Geneva, Switzerland, John Knox stands there as one of the four reformers chiseled out of that wall 
with this inscription, it's in French, under him, one man with God is always in the majority. Now, I don't think John Knox would have phrased it that way, and John Knox would have never seen himself as a single man in that sense. He had many others standing with him, and he stood together with the Reformers and with the church. He wouldn't have been arrogant to say that he was one man, a majority. But the point is, Knox understood, and he was a man of prayer who wrestled with God in prayer. And Knox frequently felt overwhelmed by spiritual and political enemies the circumstances of his life, and many times feeling that all was lost for Scotland. And it's in that sense that he prayed. The Queen Regent Mary Guise admitted that she was, quote, more afraid of Knox's prayers than an army of 10,000 men. Doesn't that humble us? How little we value prayer. We Americans, we are doers. We are not prayers. Let us see something of this from Knox. Knox did not see prayer as something reserved for power saints. It was the calling and duty of every Christian. It was, in his mind, the channel by which God pours out his blessing on men and nations, and it's a calling for all of us. And Knox, we won't go into it, but he saw trouble as a springboard for prayer. He's doing this labor and toil as the Apostle Paul did. But Knox saw himself as a feeble soldier for Christ. We, we might smile when we see that, but he did. He genuinely did. He saw himself as a feeble soldier. And so he sobbed out his fears and his petitions to his God in prayer. And he teaches us to do likewise. And finally, Knox was an example of using God using simple men preaching the gospel to bring mighty revival and reformation. An example of God using simple men and women to bring mighty revival. John Knox was definitely cast in the mold of a biblical prophet such as Elijah. Don't we think of him that way? Taking a bold stand to uphold and proclaim the word of God. And during his lifetime, he was frequently denounced and ridiculed and outlawed and forbidden to preach, ordered to be shot on sight, But he preached. 140 years after his death, the English parliament condemned his books to public burning. 140 years. In 1739, when George Whitfield burst onto the scene preaching in the Great Awakening, he was ridiculed for preaching doctrine borrowed from the Kirk of Knox the Church of Knox. So they're still ridiculing Knox's name even then. And even today, Scotland largely dismisses and resents the legacy of John Knox. And his grave exists under a parking lot. Michael can tell you about it. He's been there. I've seen photos of it now. With a small marker on parking spot 23, where his grave is, next to the church where he preached at St. Giles. Knox would have been untroubled by that. For his goal was the glory of God and the proclamation of the gospel. He was a small man. He was of weak constitution. His health had been broken, as we've seen. And he felt himself to be weak, and he knew himself to be weak. And he, he, like the Apostle Paul, spoke with fear and trembling. But that is why he is an example for all of us, every one of us. All of us who do not 
face our own weaknesses when confronted with the calling to walk with Christ and to make him known in spite of the always present opposition of the world and the spiritual battles we always face and the church of every generation faces. That's why he's such an example. I close with these two quotes. One is from John Knox himself. He wrote The Reformation of Gotland. And the famous quote from that work is, God gave his Holy Spirit to simple men in abundance. That's how the Reformation took place. That's how Knox views it. Thomas Smeaton, a contemporary of Knox, after his death, stated it this way, I know not if God ever placed a more godly and great spirit in a body so little and frail. Isn't that an encouragement to all of us? No matter how weak or frail or hesitant we may be, by the power of the Spirit, let us rise like John Knox and declare Jesus Christ to our day and age. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this example. Thank you for your Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit who is still at work in our day. We know that you are able to do more than we can ask or imagine according to your power that is at work within us. So build us up as we meditate on your word, as we think of those you have already called to you, that great cloud of witnesses that has gone before us. And let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We pray in his mighty name. Amen.